Chapter 1 The Original Office I Became Fascinated with Embarrassment Long before Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant met and created the office, they worked at actual offices around London. Gervais, who spent much of the 80s trying in vain to become a George Michael-like pop star, took a job as the assistant events manager at the University of London in 1989. Merchant, meanwhile, bounced all over the city, taking menial gigs that made him desperate to find a line of work that could utilize his comedic talents. Years later, their experiences would prove to be invaluable when creating the show. Ricky Gervais, David Brent's series co-creator. I was happy with my life back then. I walked to work and I had a good time when I got there. I was with my mates and we drank in the bar after work. But they say that drama is real life with the boring parts taken out and I was obsessed with the boring bits at the office. I was obsessed with the minutiae of an excruciating social faux pas and someone making a joke that isn't good and falls flat and then the aftermath. I became fascinated with embarrassment. Stephen Merchant, series co-creator. One of my early jobs was working for a mail-order company in the complaints department. I would go down to the warehouse and I'd always have to interact with the people down there. I became interested in the divide between the blue-collar and the white-collar worlds. I felt like I somehow could talk to the warehouse guys because we had similar backgrounds, but I'm sure they didn't really see me that way. I also worked at a charity for a while where I had to stuff envelopes. I just remember using humour and pranks to get through the day. In 1997, Gervais landed a new job at the startup radio station XFM. Ricky Gervais. My job there was to write material for the DJs, but because I'm so lazy, I ended up going in there and doing the bits myself. I pop in and do funny little things. Someone from Channel 4 was listening and they gave me a new show called The 11 O'Clock Show, which was like Saturday Night Live without restrictions. It was a spoof of a new show. I had a character that was supposed to be a straight news reporter, but I'd always start editorialising and saying crazy stuff. It gave me a bit of a profile. Stephen Merchant. I had an urge to get into radio, which was something I'd done while at school. One day I read in a music magazine about a new station that was launching in London called XFM, which had just won a radio licence. I sent my CV and a cover letter in the hope there'd be some work and I got called up for a meeting with Ricky to work as his assistant. I've joked over the years that my CV was probably the first one on his pile. I think Ricky would generally agree that he liked to take the path of least resistance. When we met, he said to me, I don't really know what I'm doing. I've sort of sweet-talked my way into this job. You have some radio experience. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. After I started, we would goof around a lot in the office and developed a good rapport. Around this time, Gervais began playing around with the idea of an oddball office manager character named David Brent. Stephen Merchant My memory of it was that he had a handful of observations about the types of people that he'd encountered at offices over the years. One was the sort of guy who liked to joke, but then would quickly turn real serious. So there's a sort of gag about joking with the receptionist. Oh, I'm having a barbecue this weekend. I've got to cut down on my burger since I'm watching my weight. And the secretary would sort of say, yeah. And he'd say, well, what do you mean by that? Are you saying I'm fat? 
Then there was him giving a job interview and slightly lecherously using it as an opportunity to leer at this young interviewee. Ricky Gervais I saw David Brent as a Frankenstein of all the men I'd met growing up and then worked for. When I was 17, I went along for a job interview at one of those recruitment places to get a job during the school holidays. It was me and another guy. And this guy went to us, I don't give shitty jobs. If two guys come to me, and he phoned up his mate and he went, hey, it's me, yeah, I've got two guys for you. Yeah, they're perfect. Yeah, of course they're 18. I remember thinking, hold on, we're meant to trust him because he's lying to a friend. That's an odd way to ingratiate yourself to two strangers. That bit made it into the character. Gervais and Merchant lost their jobs at XFM in August 1998 when the radio station was bought out by Capital Radio. Stephen Merchant In 1998, I took the training course at the BBC and drew a lot of inspiration from it because even though it was the BBC, it doesn't mean it's a world of glamour and showbiz. It's still people squabbling over chairs and staplers. Anyway, the course required me to make a little documentary. Other people made documentaries about the local barbershop or a local service station. And I said to Ricky, why don't we do something using these character observations we've made at offices over the years? Ricky Gervais. When Stephen suggested that, I was watching a lot of docuseries where these ordinary people will be followed by cameras and they get their 15 minutes of fame. There was one called Driving School, which just followed a woman who couldn't pass her test. There was one called Hotel, set in Liverpool. It was just people at work. Asha Tyler, producer. The programme makers somehow found these uh, eccentric characters in everyday situations and followed them and wove the equivalent of a narrative complete with multiple A, B and C storylines and cliffhangers. It was a genre that didn't exist up until that point. Stephen Merchant. We were quite entertained by one, Troubleshooter, where a guy called John Harvey Jones went around trying to fix problems with struggling companies. He met a bunch of small, family-run firms where there'd be lots of squabbling or just incompetence. We ate through a lot of those when we began putting together the office. They gave us lots of ideas. Ricky Gervais You were hooked in because they found funny characters that I think people sort of think, oh, that could be me. There's something aspirational about, oh, he's famous now and he worked in a factory. Well, I could do that. Stephen Merchant When we started working on ideas for our show, we literally sat around and just talked about the offices we worked in and the kinds of people that we'd work with. And quite quickly, we felt like there was a crossover of types that both Ricky and I had worked with. There was the person who didn't really want to be there and was just getting through the day, which was probably both of us in different ways. And then there was the sort of people who wanted to make sure everyone was doing everything by the book. They normally had a little bit of authority, but no real power. I had a boss at the BBC for a while in one of the jobs I did there who tried to be the fun guy, which kind of undermined his own authority. They filmed a short demo called CD Boss, where an early, crude version of David Brent tries to impress a potential hire by lying to his supervisor on the phone right in front of him, essentially a recreation of Gervais's teenage experience. Stephen Merchant We were pleased with it straight off the bat, but I think it was a slightly slower gestation in thinking, oh, maybe we can make this into a show. I just remember people sort of started to see it and there was some interest in it. It very quickly took on a life of its own. 
I had to take it back to the BBC and I managed to get in to see some of the executives there and show them the tape and they were very impressed by it. Ashatalam. CD Boss was passed around in comedy circles. There was a bit of a buzz growing around it and a few producers and directors started circling. And then we set up a meeting with John Plowman at the BBC to see about turning it into a series. John Plowman, executive producer. What I remember most about my initial meeting with Ricky and Stephen is their chutzpah. Most people come into a situation like they were in with a degree of humility. I looked at them and I could see that they'd already won a Golden Globe in their heads. There was such confidence. One of them said, I've got a great show, and the other one said, I'm going to star in it. Stephen Merchant He asked why should we direct it, and I remember in all seriousness saying, we might be the next Dawson Wells, and he said, you might not be, and I said, you don't know, we might be. Now I realise how absurd that sounds. At the time, it wasn't that I thought we were geniuses. I think we just thought, no one knows, maybe we're really good. It was bizarre, I don't know if it was a kind of complete arrogance, I think it was a naivete probably about, well, how hard can this be? We did this thing and this is pretty good. Anil Gupta, executive producer. Jane Root was in charge of BBC Two at the time. We played her the demo tape after meeting with John Plowman and then explained to her it was a mockumentary about an office. I remember her turning to the guy to her left, a guy named Liam Keelan, who was the scheduler, and there was a pause when the tape finished. She turned to him and said, Is that funny? He said, Yeah. She said, All right. That was them commissioning the pilot. Ricky Gervais. I think we got it approved because no one really cared. It was low risk. They were going to put us on Monday nights in the summer. It didn't cost anything and we didn't get paid much. The show is presented from the point of view of an unseen documentary crew chronicling the mundane lives of workers at an everyday office for a company called Wernham Hogg, which sells paper. The office is managed by David Brent, a failed musician who uses cringe-inducing humor as a desperate means to impress and befriend his employees. His lead salesman is Tim Canterbury, who dreams of finding a more fulfilling line of work but stays around because he's desperately in love with Don Tinsley, a receptionist who is engaged to a selfish, insensitive warehouse worker. Don and Tim kill time by playing jokes on Gareth, an oddball salesman completely obsessed with the military. At almost no point does any actual work get done. Ashitala. Doing a pilot was a big leap from a demo tape. David Brent had to become a much more well-rounded character, not so much obsessed with women, but obsessed with the low-level corporate world. Alongside him, we had to create other well-defined office types. We'd all worked in offices and we talked about the archetypes. One we came up with was the everyman, the guy that should have moved to London but stayed in his hometown. That became Tim, played by Martin Freeman. Then we knew that a lot of offices have a mum, someone that makes everything tick. Well, that can be a receptionist or an office manager. That became Dawn. Then there's the guy obsessed with the military. That became Mackenzie Crook as Gareth. Ricky Gervais. Gareth was based on a kid I went to school with who was in the TA. 
the Territorial Army, the UK equivalent of the National Guard. He was a real macho man, but when Mackenzie Crook came in for the audition, it was even funnier because he's a guy that looks like a baby bird talking about how he's able to kill a man. Suddenly it became twice as funny. Ashatala. We wanted to cast people who were as naturalistic as Ricky, and that's where you need a bit of luck, the sort of alchemy that comes together on every great show. Ricky had seen Martin Freeman at a sketch show. You could see very quickly that he was very naturalistic, classy actor. Lucy Davis walked in the door, and I did my first audition with her, and I was absolutely bowled away by her heart and naturalism, down to the smallest detail of her performance. I mean, he just couldn't see the acting. They set the show in Slough, England, a sleepy town about 25 minutes west of central London. Stephen Merchant. It's just the perfect sort of anonymous town. We used to talk about how if you live in Slough, you didn't quite make it to London. You're so close to the bright lights, but you're just not quite close enough. Ashitala. Slough is nothingville. When you said Slough, nothing particularly came to mind. It was an archetypal working-class British town, the likes of which you find all up and down this country. Stephen Merchant. We were originally going to set it at a paper and dye company, but then we researched it and found out that they didn't really exist. But there were paper companies, obviously. That became interesting to us. It's something everyone uses, but you never really think about the manufacture or the sale of it. It's just something everyone has. There's also something just about the blankness of it and the anonymity of paper and the idea that in the case of Dawn, it's something she could draw on that could be really creative and fulfilling. But at the moment, it's just sort of blank. At one point, I went down to a paper company and sort of wandered around the office and spoke to them and took notes about the sort of mechanics of how it worked. They shot the first season over just a couple of months in early 2001. Anil Gupta. We found an old production office and shot there. Everything was very cheap. We didn't really use lighting. We also didn't have to sit around and wait for the actors to show up. Everybody turned up at the beginning and they stayed the whole time. We didn't even have a call sheet. Stephen Merchant. I remember on the first day trying to reassure everyone that even though we were kind of inexperienced, that they were in safe hands. And I remember saying something like, yeah, we know all the terms, you know, cut, action, roll over. And the first AD went, it's turnover. And I said, turnover, right. So we had no idea what we were doing, really. We just knew what we wanted to see on the screen. Andy Hollis, cinematographer. Stephen always wanted the interviews to look as shitty as possible. He wanted their skin to look really green, like the camera hadn't been set up right. Stephen Merchant We had this idea that the tapes of the show had been sat on the shelves of the BBC for a long time and no one had ever aired it and then they found it one day and stuck it on to fill up a time slot. So we had the idea that the colour had faded like in an old photograph. Ricky Gervais We revelled in the slowness of the show because it was funny. It's not choreography. It's supposed to be real life and in real life people talk over each other and fluff their words. There's that juxtaposition between how you see yourself and how other people see you. That was a big one for me. It was all about that blind spot. That's why it was a fake documentary. 
I honestly wanted people to think it was real. Stephen Merchant. There were things that struck us when we sort of realised, oh, if you shoot a scene through a window, you put the window between you and the action, and then that gives it all that distance. So therefore you could believe that they'd forgotten they were being filmed at that moment. We called them spying shots. And then we started to get this vocabulary of what was a spy shot and what was in the room. And so we started to build up this kind of grammar that became a sort of shorthand as time went on. John Plowman. Normally the ratio of film to cut film is 12 to 1. That means you shoot 12 minutes to get one minute. They were doing 30 to 1. Stephen Merchant. I remember in the first week of filming, the producers came to us and they were like, OK, you shot three times more footage than anyone's ever shot. We didn't know. So we were just covering everything from every angle, every possible iteration. And they said, you have to shoot less because we just can't keep up with this amount of tape. It was quite a steep learning curve about technique. There were stacks and stacks of tapes just getting sent off to the editing suite. This led to a tedious work environment where Gervais was always trying to break the tension. Stephen Merchant. Ricky used to work hard to make the other actors laugh, particularly Martin. I'm not quite sure why. I think it was probably partly just to keep levity on the set. And I think also probably just that Ricky likes to keep his mind stimulated and keep himself energised. And I think that's a fun way to do it. Ewan McIntosh, Big Keith. When the camera wasn't on Ricky, he would do anything to make us laugh. He'd draw a picture of genitalia and point to it just as you were trying to concentrate. He'd do anything to make us crack up. They had a lot of trouble getting scenes finished. Stephen Merchant. There was one where Ricky gives Tim an appraisal that just took forever, in part because Ricky kept trying to make Martin laugh. And I used to get kind of frustrated because I was worried about the clock and running out of time. And I would shout at him, Come on, Rick, for God's sake. Ewan McIntosh. After about 30 takes, people would be like, Come on, we have other stuff to do. People want to go home. But I think Ricky needed an environment like that. He needed to blow off steam. He and Stephen were directing it all day and then going to a hotel room and putting a rough cut together every night. They needed to blow off steam just to stay sane. Andy Hollis. A normal shooting day would be 8am to 7pm. At one point, we were shooting the same week as the World Cup. If there was a big match on, we'd set up one of those big tellies and watch it during the shooting day, which would be unheard of on a normal show. Fine-tuning the characters to make them seem grounded and realistic was a constant focus for Merchant and Gervais. Ricky Gervais. We always tried to do little things so David didn't seem too narcissistic, too nasty and too seedy. We made him a bit of a twit. We made him desperate. And as soon as people realised that he was trying to be famous and he was trying to do the right thing and he was basically decent but had been sold a dodgy bill of goods and they could feel his discomfort, they didn't hate him. When David Brent looks at the camera, he's looking at you and you feel it, you feel his pain. It's like you want to look away because you can't help him. And I never thought he was a bad person. I thought his biggest crime was that he confused popularity with respect. Stephen Merchant In British TV, there's that long tradition of the fairly unlikable protagonist, whether it's Basil Fawlty from Fawlty Towers or Steve Coogan's character, Alan Partridge. 
Ricky Gervais. In the end, it's not even about working in an office. It's about being thrown together with random people for eight hours a day and all the tensions that come with that. Those themes are universal. Everyone has a boss they don't like or they think they know better. People always worry they're wasting their lives. Boy meets girl, sitting next to an idiot. All these things are universal. And while David Brent's antics generated the most laughs, it was Tim's desperate, unrequited crush on Dawn that drew in many viewers. In a climactic scene, he pulls her into a conference room, tears off the mic, and confesses his feelings, even though the audience can't hear a word. He then slowly walks back to his desk, puts on his mic, and simply says, She said no, by the way. They didn't actually get together until the final moments of a Christmas reunion special that wrapped up the entire show. Stephen Merchant I was always a big fan of Friends, and I always loved the will-they-won't-they thing with Ross and Rachel. And I was also a fan of Northern Exposure, which had a really great will-they-won't-they story at the core of that. I was also aware, having watched those other shows, of the dangers when you bring the characters together. There's a sort of air that's let out. There's a tension that goes. That's sometimes hard to come back from. Certainly, it was tricky on Friends, and so I think we were aware that basically when they got together, it was probably the end of the road. So we never intended to get them together until we decided to complete things. Ricky Gervais When it's done, it's done. It's Alfred Hitchcock's philosophy that the bomb must never go off. The show debuted on July 9th, 2001, to minimal ratings and mixed reviews. Stephen Merchant I was on a train a few days after the pilot had aired, and there were two women opposite of me talking to each other. One of them said, Did you see that documentary the other night about an office? It was hilarious. And the woman next to her said, Oh, I don't think that's a documentary. I think that's a comedy. And the other woman who just said she was loving it said, Well, it wasn't very funny then. The speed with which she turned was extraordinary. I took a real delight in that, in thinking that we'd fooled her. Ashatala. Traditionally, you didn't really want it to be out in the summer because it's a little bit of a dead time and it's silly season and people are on vacation and nobody's really focusing. The flip side of that is that you're not up against the big launches because everyone launches in winter and autumn. John Plowman. But then people began coming back from their summer holiday and a weird thing started happening where ratings for episodes five and six actually began going up, which rarely happens. They then did a very unusual thing for the BBC where they repeated the whole series just three months later. Then it became a hit. The first season was a scant six episodes, and Merchant and Gervais decided to pull the plug after a second six-episode season and a two-part Christmas special. Stephen Merchant It's laughable, really, looking back, but by the end of the second series, I really think we felt we'd run out of steam. I think we were worried we were going to start to repeat ourselves, that we had sort of made so many of the observations we wanted to make, and we'd explored it. And again, through naivete, I think, we probably thought, yeah, let's wrap it up and move on to something else. John Plowman. It was a big hit show. 
We would have done a third series in a heartbeat, but Ricky wanted to do that Christmas special and then move on. Stephen Merchant As you get older and more experienced, you realise, oh, actually, there was probably more to explore. We probably would have perhaps kept it going, but at the time it just felt like we'd sort of said everything, really. We didn't want it to get tired and stale and feel like it was just, how is David going to embarrass himself this week? It just felt like the right decision. Ashatala. There probably could have been a third, fourth or fifth season. At the time, it didn't feel like there was any sort of office fatigue. But does the show end perfectly? I think it does. Absolutely. It feels complete. Stephen Merchant. We wanted Tim and Dawn to get together, and that was always the long-term intention. And so I guess we worked backward from that on those Christmas specials. And we wanted David to sort of have a little bit of an epiphany. We wanted to feel like he'd moved on a couple of stages in his maturity. Tried to get some self-awareness. That seemed like a sweet victory. Ricky Gervais. I think I might have got the idea to just do 12 episodes from 40 Towers. Add that to my laziness. I've got the attention span of a toddler and I want to do the next thing while I'm doing this thing. The only thing that gives me an adrenaline rush is the idea. I wish I could just have the idea, watch it on telly, and not actually have to do anything. <laughs>